0: Well, if you would, uh, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Jonah. As you can see by the cover, uh, today we are starting a, uh, a new series on the book of Jonah. There, is, uh, there are Bibles on the back table that if you don't have a copy of God's Word, would love for you to grab one of those. We're actually going to be flipping to a couple different passages this morning as we look Uh, Begin looking at the book of Jonah, and so it will be helpful to have more than just the bulletin insert passage, which is also there for you in your bulletins. Uh, This morning, as I said, we're going to begin studying this book. Uh, It's a small book, a very short book, and yet it's a book with a large message and a wonderful message. Uh, for us to hear and to be challenged by as god 's people, and so we 'll be spending uh, at least the next four weeks here, probably take a chapter at a time and um, and then we 'll go from there i 'm going to read this passage in a moment, um, but before I do, I just want everyone to take note of the fact either if you 're looking at your bulletin or in your Bible. Um, I'd like you to notice that this account does not begin with the words, once upon a time. As we get into the story, it seems at times that maybe it should begin with those fairy tale beginnings. Once upon a time. And we're not even going to get to the really incredible parts today. But I know that most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with the story of Jonah, and you know what is coming. We're going to stop today at verse 16. I didn't mean to put 17 in there, so if you didn't know what was coming, well now you do, because verse 17 is in there. No doubt, this story, this book, this account of Jonah is a fantastical story, What I mean by fantastical is it seems to be one that has come from someone's imagination. Children's literature has long recognized that appeal. can't tell you how many Jonah books I have on my shelves at home. Veggie Tales, the cartoon, has picked up on the gripping nature of this story and has only added to that modern fairy tale feel about the account of the book, of Jonah. But before we even read it this morning, before we begin to study it and, and mine its riches for us as God's people, I want to tell you that this is not an allegory. This is not Narnia. This is not a journey to Mordor. Pick whatever fantasy you like. This is not one of them. This is history. This is amazing, incredible, unbelievable history. And let me give you two brief reasons by way of introduction to not only today, but to the book of why I say this is the case. Number one, we know from the Scriptures that Jonah was a real guy. He was a historical figure. We don't know a lot about him, but we do know that he is listed elsewhere in the record of Israelite history. We go all the way back to 2 Kings, we find Jonah, son of Amittai, there, and we're going to look at that passage in just a moment, but that's the first reason, that Jonah is a real historical figure, we know that. And that matters because if someone was creating this allegory, they would not have taken a historical figure from Israelite history and confused things by putting an allegorical story around him. Someone who you could go back to his history and verify that this tale did or didn't occur. That's the first reason that I think we ought to treat Jonah as history and not as allegory. But there's a second, even bigger reason. Turn with me real briefly to the book of Matthew. We'll probably return to this passage again, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, then some of the scribes, or Matthew records, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. And we're going to go back to that passage, probably not today, but in the future, because that's crucial for why Jonah is even in our Bibles. But the point is that Nineveh was a real city. It was really wicked. And it was in need of real repentance. And so God sent one of his prophets to really preach to them. And by way of getting him there, he allowed him to be put in a fish. But Jesus speaks as if this account, as if Nineveh, as if everything is truly history. History. So yeah, this is going to be a fun four weeks, at least for me. Hopefully for you as well, as we open up God's Word and listen again anew to this story. And so listen as I read now, uh, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise! Arise! Of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and was lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God! Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, "Shall What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to try to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for You, O Lord, have done as it pleased You. So they picked up Jonah And they hurled Him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Well, there's much that I'd like us to learn this morning and be challenged by uh, in these first 16 verses of Jonah chapter 1. But let me just jump right in and tell you that I'd like to frame our thinking this morning for the next few minutes. I'd like to frame our thinking around three truths from God's Word. Truths that I hope will remind us who we are, who God is, and what He calls us to. And the first is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning And it's this, I'd like us all to recognize through this account that we are all on the run. We are all, quote unquote, on the run. This is a story about running and about chasing. I've already told you in previous sermons that The Jason Bourne character is one of my favorite characters in part because he's always on the run. Then there is Dr. Richard Kimball. Remember him? The fugitive Harrison Ford on the run, unjustly framed for his wife's murder and out to prove himself innocent all the while eluding authorities See, because of their innocence, we can get behind Dr. Richard Kimball. We can get behind Jason Bourne. We can root for them. But not so this Jonah guy. Not so Jonah. Jonah is our preacher on the run this morning. And we can't get behind that. In fact, we can't really even fathom, fathom it. Jonah, what what are you thinking? I think it's helpful if we begin, if we begin our study of this book, and we begin chapter one by just trying to get a better handle on who Jonah is. Doesn't tell us much before we just launch into this incredible journey that he's about to go on. But Jonah, son of Amittai, is mentioned. As I said, he's mentioned once. Earlier in 2 Kings chapter 14. And so I want you to turn with me there for just a moment. 2 Kings chapter 14. See, in order for you to get your bearings, let me couch this story, this narrative, where it ought to be. In Israelite history, we are about 150 years after Solomon's death. Solomon, David's son, the king of wisdom, the king who built this grandiose temple. We're 150 years after his death, and the nation of Israel has now become a nation divided. A nation divided into north and south. And the ten tribes that are in the north, that make up the northern kingdom, are presently ruled by Jeroboam II. Jeroboam was not a good king. He was an evil king. And yet the Lord, in His mercy, allowed the nation of Israel to prosper under Jeroboam II's reign. And one of the ways that was accomplished, one of the ways that prosperity came about, was through the message of the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai. So let's look. 2 Kings chapter 14, starting at verse twenty. 3 In the 15th year of Amaziah the son of Joash king of Judah Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel began to reign in Samaria and he reigned 41 years He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin he restored the border of Israel from Labohamath Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel." But the Lord had said that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now you may be a little bit confused. Why do I read this to you? Let let me explain. Not only is it important for us to set Jonah in history in real time and place, but I read this to you to explain to you that Jonah, before we get to the book of Jonah, that Jonah is a patriot. Jonah is a national treasure. You see, big, bad Assyria, this ginormous enemy that lies to the north of God's people, threatens not only their livelihood, but threatens their very lives. And in God's grace, Jonah is commissioned to tell the people good news. And the news is this, God will hold Assyria at bay and allow the northern kingdom to rebuild its northern defenses. Jonah spoke this, and then through the king, indeed, it came about. Jonah's words were true. And they were good words. Jonah was a national hero. Not only that, but Jonah had a front row seat to God's grace. It's not as if Israel, it's not as if the northern kingdom deserved Assyria to be held at bay. In fact, the Lord would eventually allow Assyria to come down and take his people but for now, he holds them at bay, even though they are a rebellious, idolatrous people led by an evil king. And yet God saw their helplessness and he intervened. So all that is backdrop. What effect would that have on our man, our runaway preacher, Jonah, the national hero? Spoke words from the Lord that built defenses and held Assyria at bay. What effect would it have on Jonah? Well, the book begins, the book of Jonah begins with, in in the same way that so many other messages to the Lord's prophets begin, the word of the Lord came. don't know exactly how it came to Jonah, but it came. Was it a dream? Was it a vision? We don't know, but what we do know is that there was no lack of clarity. There was no deciphering of what God wanted Jonah, son of Amittai, to do. Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it. Now Nineveh Nineveh was the most important, one of the most significant cities in the Assyrian Empire at the time. It was a huge, imposing city at the center of Assyrian life. And the Assyrians, this enemy to the north, they were known for their violence. They were known for their devouring of nations. The evil was so great there, it says in Jonah 1, that, that essentially the aroma of that evil rose all the way to heaven, to the place where God was. And God tells Jonah, go, go and call out against this evil city in the midst of this wicked empire, the archenemy of your people. Now the prophets respond in different ways to the word of the Lord, but no one Responds quite like Jonah does. He rose as he was instructed to do and goes that way. He rose and goes the opposite way. The geography is he was supposed to go to the northeast. If you know the Middle East at all, here he is in the land of Israel. He was supposed to head northeast to Iraq and he gets on a boat in order to go to Spain. Due west. That's what Jonah is doing. He is officially on the run. In these first three verses, the city that God introduced him to and told him to go call out is mentioned once. The destination that Jonah has picked is mentioned three times. Tarshish. Tarshish. I'm going to Tarshish. See, he's not interested in obeying the word of the Lord. And since water lies between him and Tarshish, between him and the coast of what is modern day Spain, he's got to board a boat. And Hebrews don't readily board boats, they were people of the land, not people of the sea. And yet he's willing to board a boat. He's willing to shell out who knows how much of money in order to buy a fare for this boat. And he's going. And so we ask ourselves, why? Why Jonah, son of Amittai? Why the response? I mean, our first gut is maybe, well, he's afraid. I mean, this is Assyria. Assyria was imposing... And essentially, God is telling him to walk into the heart of this beast, the belly of the beast, pun intended. God tells him to walk into the heart of Assyria and preach a message of condemnation, of repentance. Certainly, that was not a mission that was risk-free. There was probably some fear involved. But is that Jonah's main motivation for turning and running? No. You see, the Scriptures tell us what was the heart of Jonah's decision, and we find it right here in the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. If you skip ahead just a little bit, we'll get there eventually in a few weeks. But in verse 2 of chapter 4 Jonah says O oh Lord is not this what I said when I was yet in my country that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster That's why Jonah runs Simply put, Jonah runs because of his sin. Jonah runs because of his sense of racial and religious superiority. He didn't want Nineveh to be warned of anything. He didn't want to give them an opportunity to repent and to escape God's wrath. What God is asking Jonah to do is akin to asking a modern day American pastor to travel to the hills of Afghanistan and Pakistan to preach to the heart of Al-Qaeda. And we say, no! After what they've done to us, after what they want to do to us, every second of every day, no, I'm not going. And surely... Jonah's past, this would turn Jonah the patriotic prophet into Jonah the traitor prophet. Jonah, you you announced a message of fortification for our borders. You've, You've kept our enemy at bay and now you want to include them in the blessing of knowing the Lord? You see, here's the thing with Jonah. Jonah doesn't truly get Grace. He doesn't truly get grace. So he knows it intellectually. He's had a front row seat displaying it. But grace really hasn't gotten down into the marrow of Jonah's bones. And his running reveals that to us. So what does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with us sitting here this morning? Well, Jonah in his rebellion, in his self-righteousness, is a picture of Israel, the nation of Israel, but he's also a picture of us. We're all on the run in some way and we all reveal by that running that we struggle with really understanding and getting grace. We're not all fleeing in the same way, but we are all, by nature, fleers. And it began began in the very beginning. It began with humanity's first parents, Adam and Eve, who God told them what to do, and they did the opposite thing, and then they ran. They hid. From his presence. You see, your sin doesn't just result in you running from God, your sin is running from God. More than that, even, let me read this quote To flee from God is to rise up against God. And so I'd like to argue this morning as we think about Jonah and this narrative and and how it applies to us, I'd like to to think about the fact that all of us fall into one or more of three categories. We're all on the run. We all fall into one of these three categories in terms of our running. First of all, quite possibly there are some here this morning who you sit in open rebellion to your Maker. This is the the Romans chapter 1 type of running for those of you who know the Scriptures. God has made Himself plain to you, and yet you choose to ignore who God is and simply live for yourself and run the other way with your own agenda. That's the first category of runners in here. The second is that all of you, myself included, we all fall into this category. Because every day, you and I are confronted with a question and with a choice. And the question is simply this, is God's way the best way? The dilemma is, do I follow do I obey what I know He desires me to do? Or do I choose what I think suits me better? And I'm not necessarily talking about life choices. I'm not talking about huge things like calling and relocation. The kind of things that Jonah faced in our story. Those certainly apply. I'm talking about And here it is. You've heard it from me a lot of times. I'm talking about those 10,000 mundane moments that make up your life. God calls me to speak the truth, but I've got no time for that right now. I've got too much to do. God calls me to gentleness and patience here, but He obviously doesn't know all that I've been through today. Lord, I know that you call me to love and to serve this person or these people or this spouse, but it's simply beyond my capacity to do so. And I know that we don't all have those literal conversations in our head, but we all are faced with that dilemma. And what those questions point to. Is the path of the God of grace enough for me? Or do I turn and do my own thing? I'm too busy. I've got too many issues to deal with. It's not my calling. We have plenty of excuses. But ultimately, friends, it's a matter of trusting and obeying. Of understanding and knowing the God of grace. And believing that what he says is true and good. Well, there's a third category. This last category, you know what needs to be done. You have your list, you followed faithfully, and you've accomplished much for the Lord. But now your religion has turned into your self-righteousness. You've lost sight of your need altogether. You've lost sight of your need for grace. And now you sit as the older brother while the younger brother returns into the arms of the father after squandering his inheritance. And you're saying, where's my party? Have you not seen what I've done? See, you don't understand grace. It hasn't gotten to the marrow of your bones. And so we all, in some way, are on the run. Well, the remedy for all those three categories of people, which all of you fall into, myself included, in some way, the remedy is the same, and we'll get to it in a moment. But let me move to the second truth for us this morning out of these first verses in Genesis, and it's this. God's compassion pursues runaways. God's compassion pursues runaways. I kind of want to read you a children's book, my favorite children's book, The Runaway Bunny. I think I've talked to you about this book before. I think I've even read pages of this book when we looked at Psalm 139. It's the story of a bunny who is determined to run and a mother who is determined to follow at whatever cost, at whatever that means. See, there is good news coming in this aspect of God's compassion, God's pursuing Compassion is just the start of it. Because this book is not primarily about a man named Jonah. It's not primarily about an incredible fish story. It's about a marvelous, compassionate God. See, God's heart is on full display, even in this first chapter. And it begins with Nineveh. This evil, wicked city who is not in covenant with God. A pagan city outside of the realm of the nation of Israel. And from a human standpoint, we would say that they, even more so than Israel, they don't deserve anything. They are a wretched, undeserving lot, and yet God in His mysterious mercy And in keeping with the covenant that He has made with His people, a covenant that said that those people will be a blessing to the nations, God reaches out to Nineveh in grace, in mysterious mercy and grace. We see earlier hints of this coming. Way back in the story in the ministry of Elisha, in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elisha is called to the widow of Zarephath. She's a Canaanite woman. And he eventually will bless her by raising her son back to life. You see, God was revealing little by little, shadow by shadow, that he has a heart for the nations. And though it wasn't always getting rave reviews, Jonah certainly didn't give it a rave review, this heart for the nations. It does reveal God's heart of compassion. But it's almost as if, in our story at least, that Nineveh, that Nineveh is a set-up city of some sort. It's almost as if God is more concerned about the evil that resides in Jonah's heart Then he is concerned about the evil that resides in the pagan city of Nineveh. Nineveh could could very well have been simply an instrument in God's hands in order for him to do his work in Jonah. You see, God's compassion is a pursuing compassion. It begins in verse 4. But the Lord see how that starts but the lord it reminds me of that great declaration in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2 remember it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins we were children of wrath but god but god who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ Well, here it is, but the Lord. Parents, can you think of a time when you have hurt one of your children in order to show them love? I remember when I was in college, working construction up in Linden at my parents' house. I remember my last day of work for the summer about to go back to school down in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And I was at the uh, lumber yard and I was picking up a piece of plywood and it slid out of my hands. And an eight foot piece of plywood slid down and landed. As I was holding it like this, it landed on my big toe. And the base of my big toe nail filled with blood, just enormous pressure on my toe. And I came home and My dad took a look, and he said, I I think I know what I can do, but it's going to hurt. And it hurt. (laughs) It hurt, but my dad took a drill with the tiniest of bits, and he took it at the base of my big toe, and he drilled, and it hurt so bad. But you know what? It solved it. It solved the problem. You've heard about interventions, right? We've heard about interventions in our modern day and age of addiction. Well, this is a true divine intervention that we have here in Jonah chapter 1. God hurls this storm on this fleeing prophet. He sends a disastrous storm to save Jonah from the disaster of a life fleeing from God. Do you get that? Particularly in light of the last couple weeks, God sends a disastrous storm. A storm which the sailors say is evil. And He does this in His massive mercy. And because Jonah is his child, the God who would love The one whom he had called so much that he would move the sea in order to save him from himself. That's the God that we worship this morning. That's the God of pursuing compassion. And we don't like the methodology at times. I wish there were some other way to relieve that pressure in my toe, but there just wasn't. We don't want to talk about God hurling storms at us. We want to talk about God calming storms for us. And yet that's not always what's needed. Sometimes there is simply no other way. Let me read a quote from an author that I read this week. He says, whenever we try running from God, He's committed to making our lives miserable, for our sakes. Whenever we try running from God, He's committed to making our lives miserable for our sakes. And so God tends this terrible storm, a storm that even scares these seasoned sailors. These guys are scared. Things must be bad. And they're crying out as best they can to these pagan gods. Jonah knows he's to blame. He owns that. And there's this casting of lots, which is kind of this ancient roll of the dice that even God oversees. And the lot falls on Jonah. And Jonah's calm. And I might say Jonah's resignation through this whole ordeal is amazing. Jonas just resigned to the situation. He's, a, he's asleep deep in the ship at first. And just as God called him to arise in verse 2, now the captain calls him to arise and pray. And yet he, he obeys neither command. He just assumed die. you notice that? He doesn't pray to the Lord. He says... Just throw me over. At least if he dies, the message doesn't get to Nineveh, right? But God has more work to do, more refining. And as we know, this is just the beginning of Jonah's story. But the good news for Jonah and for us is that God's compassion is one that pursues Runaways. God could have done his work without Jonah. He could have simply given Jonah what he deserved. Death in that storm. But as we will see, the compassion that pursues is also the compassion that will prevail. It will prevail in Jonah's story and it has prevailed in our stories this morning. Because the sign of Jonah has become a reality. The one to whom this story points has come. Jesus, the Son of God. Jonah ran from God. We run from God. But Jesus set His face to Jerusalem in order that He might be made sin for us. And the pursuing compassion of God has caught its prey in the cross. That's beautiful. That's good news. And if God has done this for us, then how could we not trust Him in all things? You see, the call for you and I this morning begins by admitting in some way, to some degree, we are all running from God. Maybe it's in defiant rebellion. Maybe it's in self-righteous religiosity. Or maybe it's just in selective obedience to God's commands. But we are running from a God of grace. Well, there's more that could be discussed, but let's close with this final truth. God simply calls you to trust and obey. Not too flashy. Pretty simple. God simply calls you To trust and obey. God's request of Jonah was bold. It was risky. There's no doubt about it. But Jonah had a basis for that obedience. Jonah had a display of grace in his memory bank. He had a knowledge of God's character that should have, that could have sunk deep into his bones. Simply put, those who say that they fear the God of heaven and earth follow the God of heaven and earth. Those who have experienced a God of grace must extend that grace to others. I don't know the specifics this morning of how God's Spirit is challenging your hearts. We all come from different places. We have different challenges. You've even heard these words differently this morning. But I pray God's Spirit is doing His work in your journey. It's a journey that must recognize the clouds, the lies of sin that cloud God's grace. So we think about Jonah and we think, how could he be so deluded? He confessed that he worshiped the God of heaven and earth, the God of the sea and the dry land. He must have known he would never escape his presence. He knew Psalm 139, that Psalm of David. And yet sin had blinded him. As we close, let me point out three things that Jonah's experience reminds us about the character of sin. The first, I've already spoken of it briefly, is that sin deludes and deceives Jonah thinks he can run. And in fact, his his flight was probably encouraged because here he goes down to Joppa and there's a ship ready to go due west. Maybe the Lord didn't mean what he said because the road seems to be paved away from the Lord. This one author says, there will always be for you a ship to Tarshish. There will always be a ship that's headed to Tarshish. The evil one is eager for you to flee from God, and he will help you on your flight. So don't be deceived. Well, secondly, we see from Jonah's experience that sin promises, but never delivers. You know this is the case. Some of you have lived this Over and over, sin only costs a great deal. Jonah was willing to sacrifice a whole lot for his quote-unquote freedom. And yet there was nothing there ultimately for him. Well, the last thing is that sin always affects others. Always affects others. These men on this ship, they are fearing for their lives because of Jonah's sin. Jonah has brought them into his story. Now, God has used that wickedness and evil to do His work in those sailors even because they cry out to the Lord eventually. They make sacrifices to the true God eventually. Who knows what God did in their stories? But our sin always affects others. God simply calls you to trust and obey. I pray that God's word challenges us this morning of our own heart's inclination, of our own understanding or lack of understanding of grace, of the God who loves you, who pursues you in his compassion, and calls you to trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for the story of Jonah, which to us does so many things. It points us to the sign of Jonah, the one who would come, who would die for us, who would spend days entombed for us only to be risen with power, And with glory. Jonah's story also challenges our own hearts. About the things that we've talked about. And so I pray Holy Spirit. That you would take this word. That you would plant it deep in us. That it would change us. That it would grow us. That it would conform us to the image of your son. In whose name we pray. Amen.